Well, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to read verses uh, 1 through 7 together. And then uh, <clears throat> during the sermon, we'll work through uh, Isaiah 7 through Isaiah 9, kind of look at the whole um, context of these familiar Christmas texts. So Isaiah 9, uh, beginning in uh, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land by the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light is shine, has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy uh, at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For when the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of, trampling, of the trampling warrior in battle and tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of, the Lord of hosts will do this. Father, these words that we read are glorious beyond even our best attempts of uh, being able to grasp them. Uh, Father, would you give us a glimpse of the glory of Christ this morning? May he be the one who reigns in our hearts. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So last week we looked at the glorious rescue, how Christ rescues us from being glory thieves. Uh, the angel said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. And so Christ comes to rescue those that are selfish, desiring their own glory so that they can actually worship him. And this week we're going to look at Christ himself. We're going to look at uh, the glorious Christ himself. And as I pick this text, sometimes uh, when you're committed to expository preaching, you think you pick a text and you're going to preach a certain sermon and then you study it and you look at it in its context and you find out that uh, the sermon's going to be a little different. And that's the case uh, this morning. But I come here this morning desiring to deliver a gift to every one of you. But I don't come as Santa Claus does with a jolly laugh and, and presents for little girls and boys. 
I come as one whom the Bible says will be judged more severely because of the position of Bible teacher. So I come to deliver a gift to you, honestly, out of fear for Christ. Desire to honor Him, knowing that at the end of the day, I won't stand before your approval, but I'll stand before His approval. And my job, week after week, is to do what? Deliver you Christ. To put the spotlight where the Bible puts the spotlight. But this gift is in the context, at least these two Christmas passages in Isaiah 7 and 9, sits in such an interesting context. It's a political context. All right? How many of you are excited for 2024? How many of you guys just see great things coming in 2024? You know, my dad and I are on different ends of the political spectrum, but we both agree on one thing. We look at 2024 and think of the politics and just groan. Just kind of like, ah. Oh. Well, my heart has been uh, given such a gift in studying this passage. And it's timely. 2024 is about to start. You're going to function as one who's meant to glorify Christ in the next year, which happens to be an election year. And I'm going to argue that unless Christ is enthroned in your heart, there will be much groaning, much fear-mongering, much talk. And my question is, to what avail? So we're going to seek to do the most glorious thing we can ever seek to do, and that is to look long and hard at Christ. Here's how Paul described this. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. There's no greater endeavor we can do than to focus our attention on him. But I'm going to tell you, because I know you're like me. We don't always receive God's gifts with open arms. As we're going to see, King Ahaz, a long time ago, also wasn't ready to receive God's gift from God. All right? So let's dive into Isaiah 7. We're going to look at Isaiah 8 and part of Isaiah 9. We're not going to go through all the verses. We're going to go through quite a bit. We're going to read it uh, together. But the charge of the sermon is this. Be firm in your faith. All right? That's the goal. Be firm in your faith. And I actually get this from Isaiah 7, 9. Um, 
uh, where he says, if you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. If you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. But the way of many Christians over this next year will be soft instead of firm. I believe this. Many in the evangelical church in America are going to be like jellyfish this next year rather than a rock. They're not going to be firm in their faith. And when they are, this will be the evidence that they're actually not firm. There will be much talk of fear. A lot of talk like, you better be afraid of this. You better be afraid of that. There will be much talk of conspiracies. There will be much talk of political saviors. And though they are like jellyfish, they will think they're strong because they have enough guts to speak up. Well, what is, what has God called us to say? When he calls us to lift our voice, what message does he want us to give? To whom does he want us to point? Someone might say, well, Sam, are we not to partake in politics and do our due diligence and be good citizens and vote and actually care about our country that God has blessed us with? and about the society, and about our fellow neighbor. And to all those, I say yes. Yes to all of those things. Yes, we are. But here's the key. Here's the litmus test. If we have all those intentions, and yet fear and panic and much talk of Politics is what dominates our lives. You can know that you're not that firm at all. All right? Let's look at this text. Let's look at how Christmas can give us a gift that we can have joy throughout this whole next year no matter what happens politically around us. Turn to Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 3. This is under the heading in your notes, Fear Not. So what does it look like to be firm in your faith? It looks like not fearing. All right, let's read. Isaiah 7, 3. Before we do that, Actually, I want to pull up the slideshow. Because here's what happens when you read this text. You get mixed up on who Isaiah is talking about. So, did I just click it? All right, here we go. Here's what's going on. We have our own political situation, right? Here's what's going on in Isaiah 7, where we have this Christmas text. In Isaiah 9... Let's look at what was happening in, in those days. So, by this time, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel 
have separated from each other. And when the northern king kingdom is being talked about, it'll describe uh, the northern kingdom as Jacob sometimes. And the king of Israel is King Pekah. All right? And uh, Samaria is the capital. So whenever any of those terms are used, it's referring to the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, uh, Jerusalem is the capital, and King Ahaz is the king of Judah. And Judah has been given a promise that they will have a king that will sit on the throne of David forever, right? Here's what's going on uh, politically. So King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria is the superpower. Everyone is afraid of them. Uh, and Israel, King Pekah, has decided he's going to join up with King Rezin, and they're going to take over Judah. Those two countries are going to take over Judah, and they're going to set up uh, the son of Tabal, or Tebal, in place as king. All right? So, conspiracy talk is happening. It's actually happening, though. They're actually doing it. And so if you live in Judah, you're afraid. And so King Ahaz has a choice that you're going to see in this text. He can decide to become friends with Assyria in order to survive, or he can trust in what the prophet Isaiah tells him. All right? So that's going to be his choice. And I'll just leave this up for a while. So as we're reading the text, you can keep it straight in your mind. All right, verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, the king of Judah. You and Shear Jassub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah, which is Pekah. So here's what he says to the king of Israel, or the, the king of Judah. He says, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. All right? We're in our own political situation. I think a similar warning ought to come to us. But the fundamental charge is not to be overcome with fear. And he says, because with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. 
So God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz, and he says, everyone's afraid. You don't be afraid. You do not be afraid. Trust me. Now, someone would say, well, let's get real. Because when you read in 2 Chronicles 28, what's actually happening is stuff like this. For Pekah, the son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day. Killed 120,000 in one day. All of them men of valor, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. In Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, that's of Israel, killed Messiah, the king's son, and Azrakum, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah, uh, the next in authority to the king. And the men of Israel took 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought spoil to Samaria. So I can just see people in Judah saying, okay, Isaiah, you're telling us not to be afraid. You obviously don't know what's going on in Judah. So back to Isaiah 7, beginning in verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. That's the capital. And the head of Damascus is Rezin. That's the king. And within 65 years, Ephraim, that's Israel, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, the capital. And the head of Samaria is, I love this, the son of Remaliah. It's almost as if Isaiah is saying, he's not even going to last long enough to tell you his first name. And then he says, if you're not firm in faith, you'll not be firm at all. And King Ahaz has a test in front of him. He has a test in front of him. And this brings us to point two in our notes. Trust be firm in your faith, trusting God's word more than your sight. Here's what Ahaz is doing. Ahaz has intel. And he has sight, and he says, I really know what's going on here. And then you have the prophet kind of speaking words of, yeah, I can't quite see that. I can't see how that can be true. And so, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, and he says this, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, let me tell you what this is. You might say, boy, he's a God, godly man. He's a God-fearing man. Wrong. This is unbelief cloaked in religious talk. This is unbelief cloaked in religious talk. This is Ahaz seeking to add virtue to his unbelief. And why does he not want to ask for a sign when he's urged to ask? Because he already has his heart set on plan B. He already knows what he's going to do. 
It doesn't matter what the prophet of God says. His heart is set on victory in a certain way with a certain Savior, and it's Tiglath-Pileser. That's where his hope is. That's how Judah's going to survive. He already has decided in his heart to go with plan B, to bow down to Assyria. Now hold this thought for a minute. In light of our own political mess, we can be tempted to have a plan B. And in fact, we can roll our eyes and get tired when people remind us of the sovereignty of God and Jesus Christ. When we just want to win the way we want to win. We can do this. We can roll our eyes at these prophecies and these promises and this king that we can't see right in front of us. But we can see presidents and and candidates. And so here's what God says, verse 13. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, so this is to King Ahaz, this is to Judah. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now we know that this prophecy is fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Matthew tells us this in Matthew 1.18. We'll start in verse 20. So so Joseph uh, has decided that he is is just going to divorce Mary so that shame won't come upon her. Uh, uh, but here's what happens in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he'll save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what The Lord had spoken by the prophet, that's Isaiah, and then they quote it. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So virgin is a a girl that is not yet married and has not yet uh, lost her virginity. And Isaiah prophesied, that his son is going to be born to Judah. And he's going to save them, Matthew says, from their sins. Now, I think this is a telescoping prophecy. I think this is a prophecy that had relevance in Isaiah's day and ultimately points uh, us to Christ. And... and, uh, The reason why I say that, let's read verse 15. It says this, 
He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy, now he says boy and not son here, knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread, Syria and, and uh, Israel, will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days that have not come since the day that Ephraim, that's Israel, departed from Judah. The, and, and what is he going to bring? The king of Assyria. So it's going to be destruction on Israel and Judah. And it's going to come from Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the ends of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and all the thorn bushes and all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and hair of the feet, and will sweep away the beard also. God's going to use the king of Assyria like a razor and bring shame upon Israel and be, bring shame upon Judah because their hope is in man and not in God. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom ultimately fell uh, to the Assyrians. Uh, Isaiah 9.13 tells us about this. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm, branch, and reed in one day. All right? Now let's go to chapter 8. Let's look at how God is going to give Isaiah and his wife a child as a, a sort of prophecy uh, against Israel and Judah. All right? And I went to the prophetess, that's his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Maher Shahal means the spoil speeds, and uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place on that. And Hashbaz means the prey hastens. Essentially, the boy's name is basically telling Assyria, "Come get him! You got a free shot at him right now. You can take him as prey. You can take the spoil." For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord has spoken to me again because the people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. That's gone. The people refuse the water that flows gently. And they rejoice over Rezin, the son of, Sem uh, of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise over its channels and over all its banks, and it will sweep into Judah. 
It'll overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel. Be broken, you people. Be shattered. Give ear. All you of far countries, strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. So destruction's going to come, but they're not going to be able to be totally destroyed because though God judges Israel and Judah, no enemy will ultimately be able to destroy them. Verse 11 says, For thus, or for the Lord spoke thus to me, with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of the people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him, you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. And so Isaiah says, Don't do what the people are doing. Someone says, Well, the conspiracies are true. Well, sure they're true. To an extent, it's not the full picture. It's not the full picture. The doom and gloom of evil political people and the evil, yes, they may desire to do to gain their own power isn't the fullness of the story. And when people fear and when people dread, Guess who gets the glory? All those politicians do. But Isaiah says, fear God. Give God the glory. Don't let God disappear from the picture. And what Ahaz did, 2 Chronicles tells us so vividly, it's so sad. 2 Chronicles 28.16 says, At that time Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. And in verse 19 of 2 Chronicles 28, it says, For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, the king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of of the king and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria. But it did not help him. Ahaz went into the temple of the Lord, took the treasures in the temple of Israel, meant to worship God, and he gave it as a gift to the king of Assyria. And the Bible tells us it didn't work. Who he thought was his friend ended up being his demise. Let's look at point three. So point two is, let's do the opposite of Ahab. Let's believe the prophet, even if our eyes see terrible things in front of us. That's true. There's something more true. Third point is this. 
Being firm in your faith means waiting for the Lord. Look at what Isaiah says. He says, bind up the testimony. This is verse 16 of chapter 8. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching of my disciples. These are Isaiah people, all right? Here's what he says. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Isaiah says, tell my disciples that I'm going to wait on the Lord in the midst of circumstances that are scary. And then he says this, verse 18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs importance in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwell on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, shall not the people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. What is their problem? The Word of God hasn't created their reality. The people, the necromancers, the, the, the worship of men and uh, demons, trying to bring up the dead for hope. How many Christians waste so much time listening to men rather than considering the word of the Lord. And then what does he say? They will pass through the land. This is those who don't trust in the Lord, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and against their God and turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they'll be thrust into thick darkness. So here's my question. At the end of 2024, what's been the speak out of your mouth? Darkness, doom, gloom, no hope. That was the, the speak coming out of those who were unlike Isaiah. That's what filled their hearts. Do you realize the gift you can have? Lower blood pressure in 2024? <laughs> if you'll look at Christ? All right, let's look at the... Well, before we go to Isaiah 9, let me... Read a quote from Alec Moyer. Listen to how he says this. This is so well. He says, the eye of faith, this is responding to that text. The eye of faith looks at all this, but affirms that though it is real, it is not the real reality. As always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they'll live by. Are they to look at the darkness, the hopelessness, the dream shattered, and conclude that God has forgotten them? Or are they to recall His past mercies, to remember 
his present promises and to make great affirmations of faith. Isaiah insists here that hope is a present reality, part of the constitution of the now. The darkness is true, but it is not the whole truth, and it's certainly not the fundamental truth. That's gold right there. Isaiah's faith in the midst of terrible political circumstances had hope in the now, had promises in the now, remembered the mercies of God. So now what Isaiah does, and he does this throughout uh, his whole letter, what he does is he, he, he looks at the judgment that's going to come on them, and then he transports us all the way forward to the time when the judgment is lifted, all right? That's chapter 9. Let's look at it, and we'll end here. And this is under the fourth point in your notes, glorying in the Son, the true Prince of Peace. So those who are firm in their faith, they'll fear not. They'll trust God's Word more than their sight. They'll wait for the Lord, and they will glory in the Son, the Prince of Peace. When I mean glory, I mean think about. I mean, that's the, re the most real reality in your life. For where your heart is, your treasure will be, right? All right. So now let's look at this wonderful prophecy. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Well, wait a minute. Go back to the last verse, verse 22. They will look on the earth, behold darkness, or behold distress, darkness, gloom, and anguish. But then he says, but there will be in the future no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt into the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So let me show you this. All right, you see uh, Naphtali and Zebulun right by the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem is to the south. You remember where Jesus spent most of his time doing miracles and teaching the kingdom of God? Where was it? Right there. The place where people had lost faith and God's judgment had come on that northern kingdom as well as the southern kingdom. Their gloom and darkness isn't going to last forever. All right? This is just kind of cool. I don't know if you can see it. This is a little tougher. You see where it says Galilee up there? And then Jerusalem down here, you have the list of green writing. Look at all the miracles done in Galilee compared to Jerusalem. God blessed this place. All right? And so that's what he's talking about here. And then he says, um, in the former time he brought contempt into the land of Zebulun, Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Such a beautiful picture. Here's what Matthew says in Matthew uh, 4.12. He says, 
Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went into the land of Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now why does, why did, why does Matthew point that out to us? He's reminding us of this text. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, light is dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's the interesting thing. Jesus comes to save them from their enemies. And yet, the enemy that's in focus ultimately, is death, right? Because of our sin. And so Christ shows up to defeat the greatest enemy in anyone's heart. It's never that political person. It's the sin that lives within us that brings about the judgment of hell, ultimately. And so Christ takes care of our greatest enemy. All right, back to Isaiah 9. Verse 3, he says, You have multiplied the nation and have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest. They are glad when they divide uh, the spoil. It's going to be rejoicing like harvest time and like when they won a war. And they have this spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of trampling on the battle of tumult and the garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Essentially, uh, what he's saying is, uh, the rejoicing in verse 3 is there's no more oppression over the people. Verse 4 is there's no more war. And then verse 6 gets us to the one we all long for, right? Why do we care so much about politics? Because deep down in our heart, we actually want, it's like a carrot that's always dangling in front of our eyes. When are we finally going to get a good one, right? It's built into us to desire not only a spiritual Savior, but also a political sake. Look what he says in verse 6. For to us a child is born. See, we've been waiting for a baby since Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, we're waiting for the baby to destroy sin and Satan, right? Israel's waiting for a baby. Why? They just want Rome no longer to oppress them. And one day, all political enemies will be done away with. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. You realize there will be a day where there will be a perfect king and a perfect leader ruling over the entire world. Every enemy will be put under his feet. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. It means comforter and advisor. 
Is that how you think of your politicians? Even your favorite ones? Oh, he's going to give me counsel when I need it in the night. He's going to be my advisor. He's thinking about me all day long. He's thinking out for my well-being and my good. Well, this one is wonderful counselor. That word wonderful means miraculous, beyond what you can imagine. Mighty God, El Gabor. Mighty and awesome, powerful God. The king is going to be called God. How could this be? Blessed he be, yes, truly man, but also truly God. Everlasting Father. Now this isn't messing the Trinity up. This isn't saying that Jesus is the same, the Son is the same as the Father. That's not what it is saying. We know that they both share the same essence, but the Father is a different person than the Son, though they both be shared the same essence as God. What this means, everlasting Father, is benevolent protector. This king is going to protect like a father protects. The, the task of the ideal king is uh, also the way God cares for his people. The perfect king perfectly protects and cares for his people. And I love this. Prince of peace. Prince of peace. Isn't this what we long for? Christ comes and gives us peace with God by dying in our place on the cross, taking our sin, giving us His righteousness so we can be at peace with God. But He is the Prince of Peace. Verse 7, Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. We have no idea what that looks like. From this time forth and forevermore. Now how can we be sure that this is going to take place? Isn't this pie in the sky? What does it say? What does it say? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When a non-believer meets a Christian in 2024 and all the talk is going on, all the arguments are going on, are they going to run into someone that has this king firmly in view? Which means there's peace reigning in them even when very bad things may be taking place that we need to speak about. Are they going to run into an angry, scared person? Are they going to run into someone who knows the Prince of Peace and that peace rules in their hearts? Verse 16. Let's remember our back to Isaiah 8.16. Isaiah says, bind up the testimony. 
seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Now we don't have time. We're out of time. But I want to take you to Isaiah 10, verses 5 through 13 and 20 through 25. Because what you see there is here's what God says through Isaiah. Assyria is my staff. Assyria is my anger and my judgment against Israel and Judah. And I will punish them for choosing man over me. I'll teach them a lesson. Is Assyria is my staff. But then you want to know what he says? But the king of Assyria did it with a proud heart. He didn't realize the Lord was using him. So then God wipes him out. Here's my point. You really want to put your trust in political leaders. That though they may do some good for you, though they may do things that is better for the country than others, if they do it with a proud heart, that person's not a savior. Because though God use them like a tool, He may come and bring judgment upon that one. And here's my question. What man are you going to put your trust in? So the gift I want to give you this morning, heading into the new year, is the gift God requires me to give you. And that is Christ. To honor Christ as Lord. To not fear what the nation fear, fear but to honor Him as holy. And so it's my prayer that as you begin the new year, as we go into this year, I hope you go into it with joyful expectation. I hope you're careful with what you put into your mind, in your thoughts. You'll either spend more time in man's word and man's wisdom or more time in God's word and His wisdom. And that'll determine how firm you are in your faith or not.